Amen. Well, that is our desire as the people of the Lord, is to know how we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that we might be fitted and grown up in Christ through His Word, for that is the Lord's means of sanctifying His people. So let's turn to God's Word. Today we'll be looking at Psalm 111. Psalm 111, and the title of the sermon today is The Wondrous Works of the Lord. Uh, we're we're going to tie together this idea that we just read about of walking worthy of the Lord by giving thanks, by considering the wondrous works of God and living a life that praises and glorifies Him in all that we do. Um, before I go further, I want to, to extend my hope that you all have had a, a good and happy Thanksgiving, spending time with family and friends and loved ones for we, as those who are in Christ, have great reason to give thanks, for our eternity is secure. We have a great hope that is never-ending and never-fading, and of all people, we are the, the foremost to give thanks and give praise to the Lord. This holiday season which we are in should indeed be special to us as believers because we celebrate the incarnation, the first coming of Christ who came as a baby to the end that he might go to the cross and bear the curse and the punishment of our sin. So we celebrate this holiday season kind of climactically at Christmas, but it begins with this day and this time of giving thanks, and I think that is very appropriate. Um, so again, today is Psalm 111, and then Lord willing, the next four Sundays leading up to and including Christmas Day, we will be looking in Luke's Gospel at chapter 1 and chapter 2, and the events leading up to and including the birth of Jesus Christ. So the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist, the foretelling of the birth of Jesus, the birth of John the Baptist, and then climaxing at the birth of Christ. So if the Lord wills and if Christ tarries in his return, that will be our plan for the weeks ahead. We've kind of hit a, a stopping point as we've come to this, this holiday season, finishing the book of Malachi. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be in Second Peter at the beginning of next year. But for this time, we want to focus on these things that, that point and fix our eyes upon Christ and his birth and why we celebrate the birth, why we glory in the birth. Of Christ. So with that, let's look at Psalm 111. I want to read our text. I'll ask if you're able, if you would stand with me as we read Holy Scripture. Psalm 111, we'll read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 10. This is holy, inspired, and inerrant Scripture, the Word of the living God. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to his people the power of his works and giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They're upheld forever and ever. They're performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. This is the word of God. May he write it upon our hearts. You may be seated. I ask you now to join with me and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our great God in heaven, Glorious, holy, and mighty is your name. You are enthroned above. 
And all praise and honor and glory is due to you and you alone. Lord, how can we not be thankful? How can we not give you praise for the wondrous works that you have done? Lord, looking over the course of history, and you're calling out a people, looking to the redemptive work that you accomplished in and through your Son, Jesus Christ, and looking at the salvation that you work in our lives through the transformation of our hearts, through bringing our dead souls to life. Lord, how can we not give you thanks? How can we not desire to praise and glorify you with all that we have, with all of our being? Lord, help us to pause and to ponder these wondrous works today. I pray that you would give us focused and attentive minds pray that you would give us humble and eager hearts, Lord, hearts that are, are desiring to receive and apply your truth. Lord, help us to see and to hear and to understand the words before us today. By the moving and working of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would write your word upon our hearts and that you would conform us to the image of your Son. We pray that you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Help us to lay aside sin. Help us to fix our eyes upon Christ, our great prize, our great King. Lord, we know and acknowledge and understand that if your Spirit does not move in us, that we've gathered in vain. For we cannot worship you rightly without your spirit moving, and we cannot hear and receive your word rightly without your spirit's help and work. Your spirit has inspired the writing of scripture, and your spirit illuminates the reading and teaching and understanding of the scripture. We ask, Lord, that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word, O God, is truth. We ask that we would see and know you more, for this is eternal life, that we would know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Lord, we ask that all of our worship today would be pleasing and acceptable to you. Purify our hearts even now. Receive our worship. Instruct our hearts and our minds. We pray that you would receive all glory and honor and praise for you and you alone are worthy. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So again, Psalm 111. This psalm is titled in the NASB, it is titled, The Lord Praised for His Goodness. Um, the ESV gives kind of a more imperative title. It says, Praise to God for His Work. And commands. Either way, these titles set the scene for us. We are going to see the works and the commands of God and hear that He calls and commands His people to praise Him in light of those works. Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 are considered to be kind of twin psalms. They, they go together. Psalm 111 begins by telling us that we are to praise the Lord, and it tells us why and how the Lord is to be praised. And then Psalm 112 tells us the blessing that comes to the one who rightly praises God. And even that order is instructive to us because we begin with this idea in Psalm 111 that the Lord is worthy of all honor and glory and praise, and we can put a period and a stop there. God is worthy to be praised, and he commands his people to praise him. There are benefits that come when we live that life because the Lord blesses his people as we walk in obedience. But the period comes at the end of this first psalm, Psalm 111, that God is worthy to be praised. We must remember his greatness. We remember his kindnesses, his provision, and his commands, and we do so with thankful and grateful hearts, as the text outlines for us. And overflowing out of that, our lives are lived as praise unto the Lord. There's a distinct focus in this psalm on the kindness 
and the compassion on the redeeming work of God. The psalmist says as much in verse 9, He has sent redemption to His people. He has ordained His covenant forever. So we consider the works of God as a whole, and then we consider this, this greatest work of God and His redeeming work accomplished through Jesus Christ. So we, we can summarize our goal here in kind of a short-form exhortation and a longer-form exhortation. We, we see that the saints of Christ must glorify the majestic works of the Lord, and we must praise His holy name. That, that's the shorter version, that we, we praise the Lord and we magnify His great works. But the text informs us how we do that. So, so in our primary idea here. We want to see that too. So the saints of Christ must fear the Lord. We must remember his kindness. We must submit to his truth. And then we glorify his majestic works and we praise his holy name. So in this, there is Christ running in all of this. We've seen this for a number of weeks now, the reminder that even in the Old Testament, we must see Christ. We must look to Christ. The scriptures all point to Christ and His glory and His work. And our praise cannot be separated from the idea that we are saints, that we are the holy ones that God sets apart and, and works in and gives a new heart and a new life and makes a new creation. For those who are still dead in their sin cannot praise the Lord. They glorify the Lord when He judges but they cannot give this right and honoring praise to God. So, so this idea of praising the Lord and remembering His wondrous works must have root in the gospel that the Lord has sent redemption to His people. So the flow of this psalm, I think, is actually rather straightforward. We are commanded to praise we are given reasons to praise in verses 2 through 9. And then we see just a little glimpse, a little snapshot of the life of praise in verse 10. So verse 1, the command to praise. The psalmist here says, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Now, while this is straightforward, there's much to see here. And I want to spend some time looking at verse 1 to, to lay the groundwork, to lay some foundation as to how and why the Lord commands us to praise Him. And uh, there begins with this statement of praise, praise the Lord. It's the Hebrew term, hallelujah. It, it speaks to shouting joyfully. That's what hallelujah means. It is a joyful shout. So when we consider this idea of praising God, there is emotion, there is action, there is activity. This is not merely driven by emotion, but surely in our joyful praise to God, we are welled up with emotion and overcome, as we'll see, with thanksgiving, and we praise the Lord outwardly, visibly. It is a manifest action that we praise God. But our praise must always be bound and constrained by Scripture. So, so we want to be careful when we see this idea of an excited, joyful shouting to the Lord. We must also remember that our praise is constrained by Scripture. And we dare not come before the Lord with what Leviticus would describe as strange fire. We worship as His Word says. We praise Him as His Word commands we dare not mingle man's ideas with the praise of God when he has given us an entire Bible to tell us how to praise him the the root word for praise it's found in hallelujah it's the word hallel h-a-l-a h-a-l-a-l it, it has this idea of boasting or celebrating in in something in, in the Lord of course in this case. So it's boasting or celebrating. You, you get the picture here of a young boy maybe bragging on the strength of his father to his friends. Look how strong my dad is. He can do all of these great things. Well, friends, we do something much greater than a boy boasting in his father. We boast in the great and magnificent works of God Almighty. 
the end of the word hallelujah, the, the Yah. It's a shortened form of Yahweh. Yahweh is God's covenant name for himself, describing himself as the great I am, the self-sufficient, the all-sufficient one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who always was, who always is, and who always will be. And this is instructive to our worship and to our praise. We boast in this God, the God of Scripture, as he has revealed himself. True praise is singularly focused on God and his goodness and his greatness. Uh, the, the things of men are, are, are not a part of the praise of God. We look to God and we praise him for his greatness. We praise him for his majesty. We praise him for his power, his strength, his wisdom, his knowledge. We praise him again as the term points to the, the, the summary term of God for himself because he is Yahweh. So praise the Lord. The psalmist continues, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. There's a, a driving action and a primary purpose seen in that statement. I will give thanks to the Lord. When we praise, one necessary component of praise is thanksgiving. It is that we are thankful and grateful and humbled by the kind work of the Lord, the kind providence of God in our lives. Giving thanks should mark our praise. It should mark us as the people of God. Now, Thanksgiving is on the forefront of our minds right now, but friends, we must understand that Thanksgiving should always be on the forefront of our minds. We should always be seeking how we can be thankful and grateful to the Lord for the things that he's done for us, for all of his benefits, for all of the blessings in this life, and especially for the eternal blessings that we know in Christ. We should strive to have hearts of thanks. You think about corporate worship, and we'll get to that in a moment because there is the corporate tie-in here. But does our corporate worship, when we gather together, are we marked by a people who are giving thanks to God? You know, this is one reason why, why some uh, churches will follow a more liturgical form of worship because you can have these specific elements built in. And, and many churches will have a specific time of a, of a prayer of thanksgiving because our worship is to be marked by thanksgiving. Is Thanksgiving your goal? Is it one of your goals when you come to worship? Is it one of the things when, when you get up on Sunday morning, maybe when you're preparing for worship on Saturday, Saturday night, is Thanksgiving on your heart? Is it your goal to recount to the Lord your gratitude for the things that he has done? And we do that as we're gathered. We don't sing hallelujah, what a savior, without a thankful heart. But is it your intention when you sing those words to be thankful? Do you look with a thankful heart for that day when Christ returns? When he leaves the heavens, when he comes back to gather his people to himself, do you look to that with a thankful heart? We sang about it, but do you look to that with thanksgiving? So thanksgiving is a primary action in our worship, but there's also this primary motive that we see in the text. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. We do not praise the Lord in thanksgiving with cold and ungrateful hearts. For our praise to be pleasing to the Lord, it must not be mere lip service, but it must be the overflow of our hearts that are speaking praise and speaking thanksgiving of the things the Lord has done. And that means we need to engage our minds and consider the wonderful things that the Lord has done. Anyone can recite a list of things for which they are thankful. If we were to go around the room, I could probably get everybody in here to tell me something that you are thankful for. And in that, that is a good thing to do because the, the act of giving thanks, thankful hearts, are nourished 
by that activity. Maybe you struggle being thankful. Well, recite the things that you are thankful for. In your homes, those of you with children, tell your children to tell you something they're thankful for every single day. Teach them at a young age to be thankful. And guess what, parent? When you do that, you will learn yourself to be thankful as well. When you see how those little minds work and those things that are seemingly not big deals to you and you see that they're thankful for those things, it's kind of convicting because you remember and you see that, oh yeah, all of these things are from the Lord. And for all of these different blessings, we should give thanks. We must strive to be a thankful people. And thankful people are known by outward joy Thankful people are known by being of good cheer and being active in praising the Lord. And that idea of outward joy and active praise of the Lord, it can then kind of launch us into the final phrase of verse 1. I'll give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Our outward joy and praise is joined together with the corporate gathering of the church. Calvin picked up on this. He said that the psalmist's resolution to praise God consists of two parts. Number one, that he would celebrate God's praises sincerely with all of his heart. And number two, that he would do it publicly in the assembly of the faithful. That is what we do every Sunday as we gather to worship corporately. We recite our thanksgivings and our praises to the Lord with sincere hearts, and we do it in the gathering of the upright, in the gathering and the assembly of God's people. The psalmist begins in the heart, but he moves from the heart to the action, to the outward action of praising God together as a people. This is a primary function of God's set-apart people, that we gather and praise that we gather and worship, that we gather and give thanks, that we come together and recite to the Lord. That's one reason we read Scripture. We're reciting back to the Lord the wondrous things that He has done. This must be from the heart, but it leads to outward action. So two, two ways to apply this, uh, I think, just to, to put these on our mind is, is to strive to be thankful in our homes. We need to be thankful in our homes because it's the home where you are seven days a week. You gather with the Lord's people once, twice, three times a week, but you're at your home every day. And if you want to have a thankful heart, you need to strive to grow in that day by day in your home, with your family, with those who see you who walk through the difficulties of life with you, who, who walk through the highs and the mountaintops of life. Strive to grow in your thanksgiving day by day in your home. And then we must be a singing people. If we're going to praise God in the assembly of the upright, in the congregation, dear friends, we must be a singing people. We sing God's praises. There, there's something in, something in how the Lord has created us that, that one response, one primary way that we praise Him is through song. Be a, be a singing person. Participate in, in our songs of praise. Sing at your home. Sing in the car. Sing all the time by, and, and recite the Lord's goodness to Him. Let those things fill your mind and you will see sanctification in your life because you will be reminded of the Lord's goodness and your sinfulness and how you're not worthy for his goodness and yet he gives it to you anyway. So we have the command to praise the Lord and then secondly, we have all these reasons to praise the Lord in verses two through nine, the reasons for praise. And I'm going to, Try to break these down a little bit so, so we're not just running through each of these phrases, but kind of group these together in three groups. Um, in, in verses 2 through 4, we see one reason that we praise the Lord is because He is great and majestic. We praise His great and majestic 
works. Verse 2, great are the works of the Lord. They're studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. So we have this idea, the, the works of the Lord. Uh, that's a theme throughout this psalm. We see that word come up several times. So what is the psalmist getting at? The, the great works, great are the works of the Lord. Well, specifically, we will tie into the work of redemption. For we could not praise the Lord for his great works if it wasn't for that work of redemption. But also, I think in mind here specifically, in the Old Testament, to, to the Old Testament, to Israel, was this idea of the works of the Lord in their deliverance, in setting apart and calling out a people, and, and then sustaining them until he accomplished redemption for them in and through Christ. So, in a way, these are one and the same because the Lord setting apart a people is for this ultimate plan of redemption. But I think there's also the call to remember the works of the Lord in that people. So great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Do you delight in the works of God? Do you study the works of God? Consider some of the great and wonderful acts of God in the Old Testament. The works of God that he accomplished up to this point. The setting apart of Abraham. The calling Abraham out to create a people for his own possession. The, the giving of the son, Isaac, when, when all things looked impossible by earthly minds. The Lord brought his people out of captivity in Egypt. He brought them safely out. He parted a sea for them and then caused that sea to crush in on their enemies. How, how many peoples did the Lord disperse to give his own people possession of the lands that he would give them? Every step of the way, friends, the Lord proved faithful. And we study these works, we consider and remember these works because they point to the power and the faithfulness of God. We delight in these works because it reminds us that the Lord keeps all of his promises. We remember these things because it reminds us when the world crumbles around us that the Lord is still upon his throne. We praise God with thanksgiving because we remember his work of salvation and provision to his people. We must study scripture with a view toward redemption and a heart that gives thanks, you know. One thing that, that you hear often now is the idea that we need to read Scripture devotionally. And we do. We need to read Scripture in such a way that it, that it pricks our hearts. We're not just reading to, to attain knowledge, but so that it pricks our hearts. So that we look to these things that the Lord has done and that He has recorded in a book for us to remember. And, and it points us to God's greatness, to His power to his glory, to his love. It points us to his judgment, to his holiness, to his wrath. So great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in him. Splendid and majestic is his work and his righteousness endures forever. You notice we go from the plural to the singular. Great are the works, splendid and majestic is the work. Splendid and majestic is his work. Uh, this, this is the tie-in to this idea of redemption. Splendid and majestic is the redemptive work of God. It is this redemptive work of God that shows that his righteousness, the text says, endures forever. Now, splendid and majestic are, are not necessarily words that we would immediately apply maybe to the work of salvation, to the work of redemption. Splendid and majestic, you, you think of the Lord being splendid and majestic and glorious, and, and maybe we don't immediately apply those words, but the King James Version, I think, gives us a good, a good rendering to help us understand how these words 
might apply. It says that his work is honorable and glorious. Honorable and glorious. It's powerful. It's mighty. It displays God's glory. God's glory is singularly on display at the cross. So all of these works of the Lord are are great. They show his power. They show his might. They show his glory. But it's this work of the cross that is splendid, majestic, honorable. It shows his power. It shows his justice. It shows his mercy. It shows, again, as the text says, that his righteousness endures forever. We also see in verse 4 that the Lord has made his wonders to be remembered. Literally, he's made his wonders, his works, to be set apart as a memorial. Psalm 135, verse 13 says, Your name, O Lord, is everlasting, and your remembrance, your memorial, O Lord, throughout all generations. The Lord sets apart his work and his person to be remembered, to be this point that is fixed in all of history. And in that, we must must see that the ultimate purpose of the Lord's work is to glorify and remember and proclaim his name from generation to generation. And as we think about that, let us remember that we are tasked with, we are charged with the passing on the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ from generation to generation. For the Lord to be remembered, the truths of Scripture must be passed on. They must be passed from generation to generation. We must entrust these truths to faithful men who will then entrust them to other faithful men and faithful women who will teach and entrust these things to other faithful women and on and on. If the Lord is to be remembered, we must be about the work of investing his word in one another. So the Lord is great and majestic. He is also gracious and compassionate. Uh, The second part of verse 4 through verse 6. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to his people the power of his works and giving them the heritage of the nations. I think these verses should be interpreted literally. This is speaking of the provision of God to his people, the provision of food as the Lord sustained his people. Again, you think back to the Old Testament as the people wandered the wilderness and the Lord sustained them by providing food and water and and gave them all the help and all the strength that they need. And he does this because he is gracious, he is compassionate, he is kind, and he is sympathetic. And these are reasons, again, to, to pull back out, these are reasons that we praise the Lord. Reasons for praise is that he is gracious and compassionate, that he looks and sees the great need of his people, and he supplies that need. He often, as we can all attest to, he often supplies that need abundantly. He's given food to those who fear him. Do you teach in your home, do you teach your children about this provision of the Lord? Do you teach yourself about this provision of the Lord? Do you remind yourself that the Lord literally gives food to those who fear him. He provides for those who esteem and revere his name. Does does the world look to you and know that you have gratitude to the Lord because of his great provision, his faithfulness that is everlasting? In this grace and compassion, verse 6 says that he has made known to his people the power of, of his works and giving them the heritage of the nations. Again, we, we could go through much of the Old Testament, the, the, those historical books of the people of Israel, and see how the Lord has shown the power of his works in giving his people their inheritance. Just one example to, to study and to remember as the text tells us, think about the city of Jericho, that mighty and fortified city that that the Israelites really would not in their own strength be able to breach into and overtake. The Lord gives them specific instructions. They obey. The wall comes crumbling down 
and Israel overtakes the people of Jericho. The Lord's wondrous works are on display in his giving his people their inheritance, their heritage of the nations, and blessing his people and giving them victory ultimately in Christ. This is a reminder that as we obey the Lord, as we walk according to his word, he blesses that obedience. It's not name it and claim it. It's not prosperity gospel that we do this and then we hold God's feet to the fire and he must do something in return. But it's a reminder that the Lord is faithful and he provides for his own. We must walk in faith and obedience and we must entrust ourselves to a God who is faithful. So he's gracious and compassionate. His works are great and majestic. And in verses 7 and 8, we see that we praise him because he is true and just. He's true and just. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They're upheld forever and ever. They're performed in truth and uprightness. This is a praise that is commanded today but it's a praise that goes on for all eternity, and I can show you that in Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15, it's it's a picture into the heavens. In Revelation 15, verse 3, it reads as following, And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God. They sang the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty, righteous and true, are your ways king of nations. Righteous and true are your ways. These are reasons that we praise the Lord, and this praise goes on for all eternity. The works of his hands are truth and justice. His precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever, and they are performed in truth and uprightness. This is our God. He is righteous and true. He is faithful and just. His precepts are sure and trustworthy. They are upheld and they extend forever and ever. It is the Lord who works true justice. You see that all of his works are truth and justice. Uh, The world wants to talk about justice. True justice is found in the word and the work of God. All of his works are true and just. His precepts are sure. His word is always trustworthy. His word is always sufficient. His word is always helpful. It is always appropriate. It is all inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it's all profitable for teaching and for instruction and for correction and for training in righteousness. His word is upheld Forever and ever. Dear friends, the word of God never changes. We would all nod our heads and agree to that. But understand, just as his word never changes, so too then his standards never change. His call to righteousness never changes. The way of salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, never changes. His statement that we must pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord never changes. His word is upheld forever and ever. And all of his deeds, all of his precepts, all of his works are performed in truth and uprightness. Everything the Lord does is righteous. Everything he does is just. Everything he does is is good and right. While the context of of this definitely points to the Lord working all things in truth and uprightness, surely we can pull out of this that everything that we do is to be done as God does all things in truth and uprightness. Hebrews 13 says, Through him, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So, So we're in the context of praise. Let's offer offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. 
And then the author there says, And do not neglect doing good and fellowship, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. We consider the truth and the justice of God's works and His Word, and we're reminded that the, the praise that the Lord desires is the fruit of lips that give thanks, and that we do not neglect doing good and fellowshipping with one another. It's for with those sacrifices, it's those acts of praise that please God. So verse 9 then, we've seen these reasons for praise, and verse 9 kind of, it can stand on its own, but it, I think it serves really as a summary of verses 2 through 8. Verse 9 reads, He has sent redemption to His people. He has ordained His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. This is why we praise the Lord, because He has sent redemption to us, His people, in Christ. And not only has He sent redemption, but the Lord has ordained that work of Christ, that covenant that He makes with us through Christ. He has ordained that covenant to remain forever. For all eternity, those who are in Christ are secure in Him. And that needs a period. A, a stop. For all eternity, those in Christ are secure. They're kept. We rest in the finished work of Christ at the cross. We add nothing to that. But while we rest in the cross, we are assured of the Lord's work in us through the transformation of our lives. Assurance of salvation comes in the redeeming work of God and the effective working of God in your life today. You don't have assurance because of a decision that you made in the past. You rest in the redeeming work of Christ because it's powerful and effective in you today. Because it changes your heart and your desires today. Now you want to look back over the course of your life and see progress and see growth. But you want to look at the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord of your heart right now. This is when you know His redemption has come upon you and you rest in the fact that He ordains His covenant forever. And what's the response? What's the response to this redeeming work and this eternal covenant? Look at the text. Holy and awesome is His name. That's how we respond when we consider God's redeeming work. We cry out in praise. We cry out in worship. Holy and awesome are you, O God. The Lord does not tire of this type of praise. Consider Isaiah chapter 6. That picture into the eternal heavens. The angels, they are calling back one to another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The Lord desires this type of praise from His people. When you consider His work, your response should be to fall to your knees and cry out, Holy, 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 great and awesome is Your name. The whole earth, O Lord, is full of Your glory. You come to the Lord with this reverent heart of praise. This reverent praise must mark us as God's chosen people. So we have the command to praise. We, we've seen these reasons for praise. Now just briefly, we'll look at verse 10 and consider a, a picture of the life of praise. The life of praise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments his praise endures forever. So I just want to skim the surface right here. We, we could dive down into so much of this about the fear of the Lord and uh, understanding and doing his commandments, but just to skim the surface, just two things that mark a life of praise. Again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We must fear and we must know the Lord to praise Him. Fear of God comes from the knowledge of God. You do not rightly revere 
a God that you do not know. As you strive to grow in praising the Lord, or as the Puritans would say, living all of life to the glory of God, it begins at that point with knowing God and fearing Him because of His great and majestic holiness. Matthew Henry says, What is holy is reverent. The angels have an eye to God's holiness when they cover their faces before Him, and nothing is more man's honor than his sanctification. It's in his holy places that God appears most terrible. Do you understand that? When, when sanctification is, when the Lord is working sanctification in your life, it's at that point that you most reverently fear God for his awesome holiness. Not because you fear retribution, but because you see how great he is. And you see how fallen you are. You see his magnificent work. And you're changed. And you're transformed. Praise of God produces fear. And fear of God produces praise. That's why we gather to worship. That's why we praise Him as we're gathered. Because praise produces fear. Because we see the Lord's greatness. And then when we fear Him, our response as those in Christ is but to praise Him all the more. So the life of praise begins with fear of God. And then the second part of verse 10, we see that a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. So the second thing to see here is doing the Lord's commandments. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13 says, The conclusion when all has been heard is this, Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. Fear God and keep his commandments. The end of all things, when all has been heard, that is the Lord's instruction. Fear him and do his will. This is the response to fearing God, that we do and we keep his commandments. They're not a burden to us. To, to obey him is not a struggle. It, it is a weighty thing. We understand that there's a weightiness in our obedience, but it's not a burden. It's not a weight that we don't desire to bear and to walk under. We desire to please him. Jesus himself in John chapter 4 said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Friend, be like Jesus. Make it your food, that which sustains you, that which nourishes you, that which strengthens you and drives you onward. Make it your food to do the will of your heavenly Father. So we ask the question, are you driven by a desire to glorify the Lord? Are you driven by a desire to glorify God? Saints of Christ must fear Him. We must remember His kindness. We must obey His commands. We must submit to His truth. And all of that adds up to praise and worship and honor and glory for God. The life of praise begins, as we saw all the way back at verse 1, the life of praise begins with a heart of thanksgiving. The life of praise begins with thanksgiving. You will never live a life of praise to God if you can't get over that hump of being ungrateful. If you can't move toward a heart of thanksgiving, none of your praise to the Lord is acceptable because it's just a legalistic ritual keeping of rules and laws. Have a grateful heart. The great end, the great work of this life of praise, as the text shows us, is that we do this in the assembly, in the gathering of the saints, in the company of the upright. We gather together and we praise the Lord. And dear saint, if you haven't heard anything else, hear this. The gathering for worship, the praises that we sing week in and week out, these are but a foretaste of glory. They're a picture of what heaven will be like. That's why we sing. That's why we praise. That's why we worship. Because we are temporal beings here, but the one thing that will, will endure for all eternity from this life is the worship and the 
praise of God. We praise because we are vessels being fitted for eternity, fitted for heaven, and the Lord fits us for heaven by perfecting our praise. So may we be a people who praise the Lord. To do that, we must consider the wondrous works of God. We must consider His work in redemption and His faithful provision. We must strive to have thankful hearts. We must fear God and keep His commands. The works of the Lord are studied by all who delight in them. The fear of God is the beginning of the wisdom and a good understanding have all those who do His commands. In the end, that's what matters, that we glorify the Lord and we do that by fearing Him and obeying His word. May we walk in the Spirit to obey and keep His word. May we walk in the Spirit to have thankful hearts and ultimately to live a life that praises the only one who is worthy of any praise. And that's the God of the Bible, the God of the Scriptures. He's worthy of all glory and honor and power and dominion forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we come now and we ask that you would write your word upon our hearts, that you would cause it to bear fruit, that you would take your truth and plant it deeply within our hearts. Lord, I ask that you would grant us to consider and to remember your work in redeeming us, a people, for your own possession. May we consider those things and remember that you do all of that work so that we might be a people who are zealous for good deeds. Lord, may we glory in the work of Christ. May we find all of our hope and joy in Him. May we respond to that hope and that joy by living lives that praise You. May we have hearts of thanksgiving. May we magnify and glorify Your great works in all that we say and all that we do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.